You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Microsoft warns of an Iranian cyber espionage group. The Cyber Safety Review Board receives critical reviews of its own. VMware warns of active product exploitation. Tax info gets leaked in an accounting firm breach. Kansas State University reports a cyber incident. CISA adds Citrix Netscaler vulnerabilities to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Councils in the UK suffer online disruptions. Cyber insurance can be a double-edged sword. More email security breaches lead to firings. In our Solutions Spotlight, N2K President Simone Petrella speaks with Michelle Amante of the Partnership for Public Service with an update on the Cybersecurity Talent Initiative. And it's Shields Up for Generation Z. It's Friday, January 19th, 2024. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is your CyberWire Intel Briefing. Thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you here. Microsoft has identified a subgroup of the Iranian-backed APT-35 cyber espionage group, also known as Charming Kitten and Phosphorus, as being responsible for spear phishing attacks against high-profile employees at research organizations and universities in Europe and the U.S., bleeping computer reports. This subgroup associated with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uses sophisticated phishing emails via compromised accounts to deploy new backdoor malware called MediaPi, designed to mimic Windows Media Player for stealth. The MediaPi malware features encrypted communication with its command and control server and is capable of auto-termination, communication retries, and executing commands. Additionally, a second PowerShell-based backdoor malware, Mischief Tut, is used for reconnaissance, executing commands and transmitting data to attacker-controlled servers. The primary goal of these attacks is to steal sensitive data from high-value targets with knowledge in Middle Eastern affairs, security, and policy issues that align with Iranian interests. The campaign appears to seek insights on the Israel-Hamas war. 
Previously, APT 35 has targeted sectors including government, healthcare, finance, engineering, technology, and telecommunications using sponsor and knock-knock malware. Another Iranian group, APT 33, has also been active, targeting defense organizations and contractors with password spray attacks and false front malware. The Cyber Safety Review Board, the CSRB, was created via executive order in 2021 to investigate major cybersecurity incidents. According to a panel of experts addressing Congress, the CSRB lacks sufficient authority and independence. The CSRB, modeled after the National Transportation Safety Board, faces criticism for its dependency on corporate participation and limited investigatory powers. Experts, including cybersecurity CEO Tara Wheeler, highlighted the board's composition of federal and tech company representatives, raising concerns about conflicts of interest and insufficient time for thorough, independent investigations. The CSRB's use of members from companies like Google and Palo Alto Networks poses challenges, especially when investigating their own technologies or competitors. Wheeler stressed the need for the board to have full-time staff and subpoena power, similar to the NTSB, to effectively investigate cyber attacks without industry or political influences. The board's current investigations, including those into the Log4J vulnerability and Lapsus cybercriminal group, have resulted in basic resolutions rather than detailed analyses. The CSRB has not yet investigated the significant sunburst supply chain attack, with the Biden administration requesting subpoena powers for the board. However, experts argue that transparency improvements are necessary before granting these sorts of powers. The Senate Homeland Security Committee is considering legislation to legally codify the CSRB, but its chair, Senator Gary Peters, is still evaluating the proposed changes. VMware is warning customers that a vCenter server vulnerability is being actively exploited in the wild, it can allow an attacker who has network access to vCenter server remotely execute arbitrary code. The issue, discovered by Grigory Durodnov of Trend Micro's Zero Day Initiative, was deemed so critical that VMware decided to release patches in October even for versions of the product that had reached end-of-life status. According to data from the Shadow Server Foundation, there are currently hundreds of potentially vulnerable Internet-exposed instances of VMware vCenter Server. A cyber attack on the accounting services company ELO left 15,000 clients with their sensitive financial details, including tax documents, exposed. The American company disclosed the breach on January 18th. The breach is believed to have occurred last March, but the American company disclosed the breach on January 18th of this year. Several incidents of financial fraud, including fraudulent tax returns, have already been reported using the stolen data. ELO is conducting an investigation into the incident and has committed to notifying affected individuals of any misuse of their personal information. The company is also offering free credit monitoring services to the victims, and emphasizes its dedication to safeguarding personal information. Kansas State University experienced a cybersecurity incident on January 16th, affecting a portion of its networks and services. The university responded by taking affected systems offline and launching an investigation. 
K-State has advised its staff and students to report any suspicious activities, while email services were expected to resume in a temporary format yesterday, the KSU wireless remained unavailable. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has added two Citrix Netscaler vulnerabilities to its known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, setting a remediation deadline for federal civilian executive branch agencies. These agencies typically have 15 days to fix Internet-facing vulnerabilities and 25 days for others. However, for these specific Citrix Netscaler issues, the deadline is January 24th. The vulnerabilities affect customer-managed Netscaler ADC and Netscaler Gateway, not Citrix-managed cloud services or Citrix-managed adaptive authentication. The first is a code injection vulnerability with a CVSS score of 5.5, allowing low-privileged authenticated remote code execution on the management interface. It's advised to segregate network traffic to this interface and avoid exposing it to the Internet. The second is a memory buffer operations vulnerability with a CVSS score of 8.2, leading to unauthenticated denial of service. This issue affects appliances configured as gateways or AAA virtual servers. In the UK, three councils in Kent, including Canterbury City Council, Dover District Council, and Thanet District Council, have experienced disruptions to their online services due to cyber attacks. All three councils are actively working with the National Cybersecurity Center to address these incidents, which are classified as breaches of system security policies under the Computer Misuse Act. The council's email systems and websites have remained largely operational, although some website functionalities may be affected. As businesses grapple with the escalating threat of ransomware, many rely on cyber insurance to mitigate financial risks. A report from SOC Radar describes how the surge in ransomware attacks has prompted insurers to recalibrate, raising premiums and tightening coverage conditions. They now demand concrete evidence of cybersecurity measures like multi-factor authentication as a prerequisite for policy approval. This shift emphasizes preventive cyber hygiene practices, aiming to lessen the frequency of cyber incidents. Still, the situation poses ethical dilemmas, particularly if insurance payouts for ransoms inadvertently fuel the ransomware industry. The dynamic between relying on insurance and investing in robust cybersecurity measures is complex and highlights the broader role of insurance in cybercrime prevention. The relationship between cyber insurance and ransomware remains intricate and continuously evolving, requiring businesses to strike a balance between strong cyber defenses and suitable insurance coverage. A report from security firm Egress reveals that nearly half of the employees responsible for email security breaches over the past year have been fired, reflecting a tougher stance by organizations amid rising cyber attacks. 94% of global organizations experienced a serious email security incident in the past 12 months, with a 10% increase in phishing attacks. Human error is a significant factor in these breaches, and over 50% of employees involved in phishing incidents face disciplinary actions, with 40% being fired and about 25% leaving voluntarily. Additionally, two-thirds of those involved in outbound email incidents were disciplined, terminated, or left their roles. These strict measures reflect the substantial financial losses 
customer churn, and reputational damage these sorts of breaches can cause. Additionally, security leaders are increasingly worried about the use of AI tools by cybercriminals, anticipating more sophisticated attacks in the future. Coming up after the break, in our Solution Spotlight, N2K President Simone Petrella speaks with Michelle Amante of the Partnership for Public Service with an update on the Cybersecurity Talent Initiative. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. In the latest edition of our Solutions Spotlight, our own N2K president, Simone Petrella, checked in with Michelle Amante from the Partnership for Public Service with an update on the Cybersecurity Talent Initiative. I want to start by saying how excited I am to have you on with us today. And I say that in a completely biased way because we work with the partnership really since the inception of the Cyber Talent Initiative program. So it's very near and dear to our hearts. So just thank you for joining today. We're so excited to have this conversation. Well, thank you for asking me. The feeling is mutual. N2K has been such a fundamental part of the success of this program. So I appreciate you inviting me on to talk about it. Yeah. To kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself and the Partnership for Public Service. Not everyone's familiar. Yeah, so I've been with the partnership for seven years. The majority of my background was in labor and workforce development. Um, and I came to the partnership originally to work on their their business development portfolio. And then it really grew as our federal talent work started to to really scale in a way that was um, exciting. And, and 
the Partnership of Public Services over 20 years old, and its founding mission was really focused on bringing young talent into government. Over the last 20 years, our mission has really expanded. And right now, um, our mission statement is to build a more effective federal government and a stronger democracy. But a core part of that work is still very focused on federal talent. So we're always thinking about how do we make these jobs more attractive? How do we open the aperture of young people so that they know what is available? And then we also work on the federal agency side to, to try to help them make their jobs more marketable, help them better understand the, you know, the current generation um, and think about retention in new and different ways. That's amazing. And, you know, again, to to give everyone who's listening the background, the Cyber Talent Initiative is a selective program within the partnership. So it's one of many programs. And that's for students who are specifically in cybersecurity-related fields or programs to gain access to that public sector work experience and develop that kind of professional cyber network and build leadership skills at the same time. Obviously, when you give that figure of 7%, that's endemic and chronic across the entire federal workforce landscape, which is troubling. But why was it important for the partnership to build a program focused on cybersecurity specifically in the public sector as well? That figure that I stated is for, you know, overall jobs. When you look at the tech space, it's less than 3%. So it's even it's even more dire. And so when we started thinking about this initiative over five years ago, MasterCard at the time came to us and said, hey, we want to build a partnership. Like we recognize that this is a cross-sector problem. I think the latest figures that Federal Times was reporting is it's over 700,000 open cybersecurity jobs across all sectors. So this is a problem that is continuing to grow. Um, And so at the time, we knew that there was a huge need in the federal space for these jobs. Federal agencies were really grappling with how best to recruit and retain this talent. And this was a space where we had a lot of experience. We have a network of over a thousand colleges and universities that we work with. We know how to recruit young people. And we also have a network of uh, federal agencies that we we work with in in, in the management space. So it, it just seemed like a, you know, it, it was perfect opportunity for us to put together, you know, the best and the brightest across sectors to think about how to help solve this problem. Yeah. I imagine with a mandate as ambitious as that, it doesn't come without its challenges. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the challenges that you have when you think about working with the public sector that are unique to their kind of situation when it comes to recruiting and retaining the cybersecurity talent? I mean, we know that we've heard about the salary difference, things like that. Yeah. And the salary difference is usually the one that people go to first because it's, you know, people are graduating and they see these very drastic different offers. And so you understand why that's the one that people think of initially. But there are also other challenges, things like hiring timelines, where like the fastest you're probably going to get an offer in federal government is 100 days. When someone is waiting to to find out if they've got an offer and they're, they're sitting on three other offers, like it's not it's not a difficult choice for them. They're going to take the offer in hand. So the hiring timelines are difficult. The private sector, honestly, is just so much better at marketing their jobs. A lot of federal agencies don't even have professional recruiters. So it's often kind of like an other duty as assigned for an HR professional. So they're competing against private sector companies that have recruitment teams that know how to go after this talent. And then also when you think about retention, Depending on the agency, the professional development piece can be really challenging, which is why the Cybersecurity Talent Initiative is so unique because we offer that within the program. 
But if you go into an agency directly, they may not have all of the technical training that N2K provides or the leadership development that the partnership provides. When you put a young person into an agency and they don't see anyone like them around themselves and they lack any kind of cohort experience or the professional development that we just spoke about, they may not want to stay, even if salary isn't like the number one thing they're thinking about. Yeah. Well, and I can say on the recruiting side, you know, anyone who has had the experience of going through USA jobs, it's not the most pleasant. <laughs> no, no, it's challenging. And you know, even if you figure out the navigation, I think the job descriptions are very confusing. It's very hard to understand if you've actually got the job or the skills to, to be successful in the job. So it, it's very difficult to navigate that whole process, particularly if you're a 21. One thing that I found so interesting and dynamic, not only about the CTI program, but really all of the partnerships programs is the focus that you have in your cohorts on really making well-rounded individuals who come out of the experience and kind of giving them exposure to technical development, leadership development, things that they may not have had when you're just coming out of an academic environment. What was sort of the model to do that? Because I think that's one thing that, you know, private sector and public sector, we don't always do that well. This is another place where we were able to capitalize on a lot of programming that we do across government. We have you know, like specified um, leadership training programs because we recognize that in a lot of these tracks across government, people continue to get promoted based on their technical skills. And then they're never given that leadership development they need to be successful as they move up the ladder. So we're trying to get ahead of that at a younger age, at an earlier stage in their career. So at least they have that great foundation upon which to build as they continue on. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit about, I should have asked you this in the beginning, how does a partnership work? You know, you have all these relationships with the agencies. Is that something that's kind of centralized across the executive branch for you all? Is that, you know, independent relationships that you are then managing independently? Is it something that's kind of spearheaded through the White House? Like, where does that kind of... Genesis start? Yeah, it's a great question. And we, I would say we work at all levels. So we have great relationships with what we would call center of government, which would be office of management and budget, office of personnel management. We're, we're always in communication with them, talking through new policies and, and learning from them and what they're doing. But we also have relationships across the entire federal space and are working with chief human capital officers and, and chief uh, information officers to better you know, better help and support them and in, in their needs. Yeah, totally. Well, I, I think everyone should check it out because it really is inspiring. Well, thank you, Michelle. Really love this conversation. I love what the program is doing. I cannot believe that we're in cohort five. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's fantastic. Thank you for your support. Um, you know, the technical training, as I mentioned, is, is really critical to the development of these fellows. That's Michelle Lamonte from the Partnership for Public Service, speaking with our own N2K president, Simone Petrella. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, 
Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And finally, from our Every Generation Blames the One Before desk, cybersecurity experts caution that Gen Z, despite being more digitally savvy, is in fact more vulnerable to cyber attacks compared to older generations like boomers. This increased risk is attributed to Gen Z's higher online presence, extensive app usage, and sharing of personal information. Jane Arnett from Checkpoint reveals that Gen Z individuals are three times more likely to be targeted and breached. Their frequent online activities and tendency to overshare make them easier targets for cyber criminals. The World Economic Forum predicts Gen Z will compromise 26% of the global workforce by 2025. Arnett urges young people to adopt better cybersecurity practices to protect themselves and critical services like hospitals, which can be severely impacted by ransomware attacks stemming from compromised personal credentials. As a Gen Xer, I'm going to stay out of the middle of this one. We tend to approach cybersecurity like we do our music. Classic? Slightly outdated, but somehow it still works. And that's the CyberWire. Today marks the eighth anniversary of the CyberWire podcast. Hard to believe that it's been that long and that our scrappy little team took this crazy idea of a daily cybersecurity news brief and made it into something that so many people all over the world have come to trust and rely on. A heartfelt thanks to all of you for your support over the years. We're excited for what's yet to come. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with John Williams from Bishop Fox. We're discussing their research, It's 2024, and over 178,000 sonic wall firewalls are publicly exploitable. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. This episode was produced by Liz Stokes. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producers are Jennifer Iben and Brandon Karp. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.